All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Gentocast, a podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of early American history at the University of Illinois at Springfield. And this is a very special episode of the Gentocast, as for the very first time, we're recording in front of a live audience here at the University of Missouri. And today on the Gentocast, we're getting ready for the polls getting ready for the elections and getting ready to stuff our ballot boxes by (laughs) (laughs) talking about elections in early America. Uh, We'll be looking at elections from colonial times, taking that through the events of the revolution, and finishing up by looking at elections in the early 19th century. To join me in that task, I have three fellow panellists. First up, we have the scrutineer of the Janto cast, who will be checking over our audio returns to make sure that there are no irregularities whatsoever. Uh, Thank you for being here, Michael Hatton. Thank you, Ken. Michael is a PhD candidate and teaching fellow at Yale University. Next up, we have a man who has never needed to bribe electors with an alcohol-fueled feast in order to win their votes. Um, Thanks for coming here, Roy Rogers. Howdy, Ken. And Roy is a PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Centre and a social studies teacher at ES Philly. Finally, we have a special guest joining us today, the loyal supporter, the party fixer, the John Beckley of the Junto cast, <laughs> who's gone to great lengths to bring us all together and connect us with our supporters. Uh, thank you very much for being here, Jeff Pasley. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Jeff is Professor of History at the University of Missouri and the Associate Director of the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. Um, Particularly relevant today, bringing a level of expertise that we don't always see at the Junto cast, he is the author of The First Presidential Contest, 1796, and the Beginnings of American Democracy. Now, before we get going to talk about elections, there are a number of people that we have to thank for making this live episode possible. Uh, Firstly, our hosts here at the University of Missouri, the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. Um, Thanks to Jeff for organising this, and thanks to Alison Smythe for her her sterling work in organising and coordinating all our travel efforts and getting us here from the different parts of the United States. Um, The event has also been made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities through its Humanities in the Public Square Fund, And that's been administered through the Missouri Humanities Council. And we're all very grateful for making this event possible. To get started talking about um, elections in early America, we thought it would be useful to begin by talking a bit about what elections were like in the colonial period. And Michael, I believe you had some things to say about that. Right. So, I mean, uh, the, the, re- the reason I had mentioned that or brought up that we should maybe say something about um, elections in colonial America is because I was uh, talking to my brother about doing this episode, and I mentioned it, and he was asking about what elections were like in colonial America, and I was describing it to him, and he's, uh, he seemed very shocked at the way these elections used to play out, uh, which is actually much different than, than they end up uh, becoming in the, the later 18th century, in the post-revolutionary period, in, in the early 19th century. Um, elections in the colonial period, certainly in New York and in Virginia, were um, 
were uh, big affairs. I mean, you know, in, in New York, in upstate New York, uh, you would have the uh, individuals who were standing for election who would, you know, send out wagons to pick people up and bring them uh, to the polling location where they would ply them with food and beer. Um, and then the, the voting process itself was something that was in, incredibly uh, public. Uh, so you would, uh, you would step up to the, uh, where they were doing the poll. You would have the, the person who was recording the votes there. Uh, and then you would have the candidate standing behind uh, the recorder. And you would walk up and you say, I cast my vote for Mr. Schuyler. And then Mr. Schuyler says, thank you for voting for me. And I appreciate your vote. And it's, it's, it's a very uh, public affair. And, you know, in New York, it, it, that type of voting or the call for uh, ballot voting or private ballot voting is only something that you really start to see uh, calls for uh, during the imperial crisis in the sort of late 1760s when they're having some very contentious assembly elections. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the will is there to change the nature of these elections prior to the revolution, but it really is the revolution that, that sort of gives the impetus uh, to bring about a sort of electoral system which will form the basis of much of our discussion today. Yeah, and certainly you see something similar in colonial elections in Philadelphia. There's a couple of notable election riots where the very public nature of elections means that um, sailors in particular are used to intimidate opponents. Um, in, in 1752, um, mobs do roam the streets of Philadelphia intimidating um, those wearing broad-brimmed hats um, because obviously Quaker voices at the ballot box are too dangerous to be allowed to, to cast their ballots. And I think one of the things that that speaks to is what a public but sort of celebratory event. In some ways, yeah. it's even more of an event today that we're, than, it, than it is today. We're very aware of when we're supposed to go and cast our ballot, but the actual as act of casting a ballot lasts only a few minutes and certainly isn't a, a great central gathering point. Um, as it would have been in the colonial period. I mean, the, the process now, it, you know, we have an election date, but we have, you know, absentee uh, voting. And so, I mean, the, you know, the, the electoral, the process of an election now is, is actually very spread out, but it, it, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't hold the sort of uh, the sense of being an event, a community event, right, uh, that, that we saw in the pre-revolutionary period, I think, definitely. So it goes from being a community event to a private choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's a hard to say which of those. I mean, it sound, you put it that way, uh, then, wow, community event, a ritual. Uh, it, sounds, it, sounds, uh, it sounds so much better. It sounds so much more holistic. Uh, but then you think about what went into that. And I, I guess one, when you talk about the oral voting and going up to the person you're voting for, uh, that strikes us as strange. That really wasn't strange for them at all because it really was a met, almost the election process as men as a kind of enactment of the social order, right? Mm -hmm. That's the it's, – it's not uh, that you, you didn't – you weren't being given a choice as to whether to choose the social order or not. You were, you were uh, being allowed to come out and ha enact a ritual where the social order that people higher up acknowledged you and then you acknowledged them. Mm -hmm. And then you all got drunk and went home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and elections could also be really infrequent in the colonial period for many right. important institutions. And some were self-selecting, right? Like Virginia Vestries, which were in charge of – 
you know, uh, both church affairs in Virginia, but also care for the poor, care for the indigent and widows. Uh, you know, they only, whenever a new county was founded or a new parish was founded, there'd be one public election. But then the vestry would be self-selecting from that point. So when there was an absence, they would just elect someone of their of the vest, the existing vestry's choice. So you know, and, many, and that is one of the most important institutions in colonial Virginia. Never was really open to a franchise the way in which county elections were. Right in New York, the the elections were fairly uh, infrequent. Uh, probably on average, maybe about every seven years. Um, but as I was saying, you know, in, in the late 1760s, they have two uh, elections for the provincial assembly in 1768 and 1769 uh, that involve a sort of uh, a much more um, modern-seeming form of campaigning, you know, which is something that develops in New York in that period that we're going to see far more of after the revolution. Right. The imperial crisis, in many ways, makes elections more urgent, right, mm-hmm. and and causes sort of the slow collapse of sort of these more stagnant institutions that were where you were infrequently changing over, you know, the fact that there was a crisis coming and there's a sense of urgency then. So you would see governments toppling much more quickly than they did in, say, earlier in the 18th century. And, and it's at a very early stage in the imperial crisis as well. I and mean, one of the remarkable things really is that by the time that you're getting to the question of independence being put on the table, there's actually in some ways the elections become less contentious in most areas that it's the mm. it's the elections in the 1760s that inspire the surprisingly big turnouts and that that then sets the tone for who the leadership is going to be in many different places um, of course that's in the areas where elections were still being um, elections for the colonial legislature were still being carried out and elections for committees and all sorts of extra-governmental organizations were also equally important in prosecuting resistance, and those would have been much more measures of community approbation than the more than the older existing forms of, of electoral practice. Mm. So we've got some idea here of how elections were carried out in colonial times, and clearly one of the themes that we, we're getting at in our discussion here is that not only were colonial elections very different from modern-day elections, but they're also somewhat different from the election practices and rituals that develop in the immediate aftermath of independence. And whilst most of the electoral framework, at least for federal elections, is laid down by the Constitution, uh, in the aftermath of independence, there's a variety of state practices in the 1780s um, and the 1770s that reflect the very different ways that the newly independent states develop their constitutional frameworks. Um, So perhaps the next question to open up to you all is, how do the first American elections, the first elections in independent America um, carry out? what What are the changes and the significant differences that emerge as a result of independence that haven't been seen previously? So you start seeing, I think, more pop, more participation Right, and then there's the beginning of the breakdown of that that uh, elections as condescension, as we were talking about earlier, where you you know there starts to be a real, perhaps not secret ballot, but the sense of you know uh, an elected official 
not just the vote not just ratifying the social position of the person being elected, but that the people are making a choice between two or more alternatives. And you start seeing larger turnout, you start seeing an increase in the franchise, and you start seeing really contested elections. I mean, the, the other thing that you see is, I mean, in the, the, the other major difference is, is in the results of those practices and, and uh, you know, the, the type of people who are being elected to offices in, the say, the 17, late 1770s and throughout the 1780s in the states, to the state legislators, uh, state legislatures, and then uh, ultimately to the, the Confederation Congress. It's a different type of person uh, than were, had traditionally been the... the uh, the type of person who was winning elections prior to the, the revolution, prior to independence. Uh, and that, I mean that socially speaking and uh, even demographically to an extent. And, and indeed, that's hard, hardwired into many of the constitutions that yeah. elections will be at the very least as frequent and probably more frequent than they ever had been in the colonial period. That, um, well, I will take this opportunity to talk about Pennsylvania. I'm sure that surprises <laughs> all of you. At the, <laughs> all of you here. Um, they put the principle of rotation in office holding, um, and therefore, every three or four years, you have to have a new slate of candidates because you're you're rendered ineligible by by term limits, um, and so there's a there's a development of practice in in that regard as well. In, in, even in commonwealths like Virginia that didn't have official term limits, there was just more turnover in general. People would be more commonly be able to, would be more commonly defeated in elections. So so even when you don't have officially have turnover, you don't see the same sort of people being reelected every seven years. So you get more frequent elections, and you get sort of just more people flowing through the state houses. And I think that's worth pointing out that when we're talking about this on a state level, the um, often you hear in popular discourse a lot about how the founding fathers at the Constitutional Convention were very suspicious of parties. They didn't want to see a, a party system developing for for national office. And yet if you look at the development of state politics before 1787 – Party politics is becoming institutionalized in, in, many, in many states. This is something that already exists. In some ways, the anti-party stance of that, some of the founding fathers yeah. is trying to shut the, door after the, shut the stable door after the horse has bolted. Well, true, true except that the, the whole one of the ideas for having a federal government, having another layer, was to get away from that. Mm-hmm. You know, the... the uh, Madison, Madison's line about how you get men of what extended views uh, who would be the ones who through the filtering system of the electoral college, they'd be the ones that get to make the big decisions. So it may, it has, that's the horse was out of the barn, whatever your metaphor was, but uh, <laughs> they hope to be able to build another layer of barn. <laughs> sort of build a fence at the very build least, a, a wall, or another a tower, tower uh, uh, building to contain the barn in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, you know, they obviously they that didn't work either. But it, uh, you know, given the fact that this the these the new office holders that you guys are talking about are people who are poor, people who are uh, don't have the big names. Uh, you know, part of the idea was that those were people were local. They were local mm-hmm. leaders uh, who would never rise above that. 
Uh, and so it's trying to get out of these basically small town situations, uh, get away from those guys so that the people who knew things and had traveled and had a, had a kind of extended vision that, so they could be the ones to make the decision. So I guess I don't think it's necessarily that they they certainly don't admit that. They're certainly not throwing in the towel on the on the horse. Oh, no, no. no. <laughs> the saddle, maybe? Yeah, the saddle. <laughs> I, I'm wondering how many more metaphors I can throw in to, uh, well, to, to muddle the discussion yeah. even further. But I, I, but I think there, even in what you're saying, the, the important point here is that they are reacting to something that is already taking place sure. on the ground. And I think a lot of the time when we talk about the image that Washington or... Um, Jefferson or Madison had about the questions of questions of party. It's portrayed as if to say that's something that wasn't really ever part of their leadership style throughout the revolution. And maybe it wasn't, but there was certainly a popular leadership style that um, evidenced itself in very different electoral practices. But maybe that's a good way of bringing us on to a discussion of the Constitutional Convention itself, and in particular the Electoral College. Um, uh, because I guess we've already talked a little bit about the intention of the Electoral College, but this is, certainly speaking as a Brit, one of the most curious features of American government. Um, Not to say that all countries don't have their own peculiarities in their governing systems, um, but this is definitely something that makes the American system very distinctive. So why was it thought that the Electoral College was the best way of settling presidential elections? First of all, they didn't, they didn't think it was the best way. It was a, it was a way. Uh, and, and it was more like the way they could get approved uh, by, the, by the Congress. Mm-hmm. Meaning, this, meaning the, not the Congress, the, the, the convention. convention. Mm-hmm. The convention. I mean, I think that's, that's the, sort of the short version. Of, the shortest version of it is that it wasn't really anybody's ideal Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, bits of people's ideals that were put together in a way that could act that, that could get the most people to vote for. So, so the short version is essentially never leave anything to be decided by a committee. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I also think it has to do with the fact that, well, as Jeff was saying earlier, it, it's meant as a filtering process, right, to sort of filter the president out of the sort of factionalism that uh, that states. Uh, had so the goal was to sort of try to get okay uh, to try to get uh, away from the sort of factionalism that was happening on the state's level, but it was also no one expected there to be the sort of contestation that emerged uh, after 1796 for the presidency. And as we'll see when we talk about 1800, the first time there's like a, like a very close contest, you can see that the system is broken and it has to be changed very quickly to something that mostly resembles what we're operating under today. So I think the f- the sort of they didn't have enough foresight, or they didn't the, the questions that they were asking ended up not being the problems that actually the federal system would face once it was put into practice. But I think one way of looking at this might be that, in some ways, many of the delegates to the convention never really wanted an election for president in the first place, and in some ways, the idea that the system was broken was a feature because then it would allow the um, election to be thrown into the House of Representatives, and then it would be a national body that could convene and discuss, which I think comes back to a broader question about what was actually the purpose of an election, in that there's obviously a great unease at the Constitutional Convention about 
whether you could have elite national figures deciding on a question as important as being the president based on an election for other purposes, which is to say if you're electing senators or representatives, they're being elected for representative purposes, is it appropriate for them then to be deciding on who the executive officer should be? And all the different states have different practices on this. Some states do elect the governor through the legislature, some elect it by popular election, and in some ways the electoral college is an uneasy amalgam of the practice that's going on in the various different states at this point. Well, it's also, it's, it's also I actually, this is something I had never really thought about quite this way before, but uh, in the same way that they, when, they want, when they went to write a new constitution, they couldn't just have it, they felt they couldn't just have it be voted on by the existing legislatures, who, of course, wouldn't vote for it uh, as well, <laughs> but, they, but they, uh, they also felt the need constitutionally to create this special body, right? Mm-hmm. A special body that would do that, you know, so in other words, the state, uh, the, the state ratifying conventions, where each state had to have a specially elected convention that, that approved the Constitution, uh, mm-hmm. that, a way to step outside uh, the whole, the existing system. And the Electoral College, uh, while they didn't have very clear ideas about how it was actually going to work, I mean, it is essentially a, a special body that's temporarily elected to pick the president, right? Mm-hmm. Not uh, legislatures and the states can decide how the electors are picked, but the electors are meant to be this basically kind of an equivalent of the state ratifying convention. Mm-hmm. They're a, a group who's going to then elect the president because they didn't feel they weren't going to let the states do it, uh, and they certainly didn't we're going to leave. There were a few of them actually who did argue for a kind of national election, mm-hmm. but because uh, everyone knew that George Washington was going to win that. So, but they didn't have too much, you know, they certainly weren't ever too close to actually declaring that. So the Electoral College ends up being a solution not unlike one they had done before, uh, but not, no, I mean, not, maybe not as well thought out. Mm-hmm. Michael, do you want to say anything? Uh, Yes. Uh, Stop (laughs) banging on the table (laughs) and lean in a little bit, just a little, not too much. I mean, the Electoral College fundamentally, I mean, the way way I tend to think about it is it's an an attempt to to effectively uh, create an electoral layer between the popular vote and the ways in which the the, uh, the president would be chosen. I mean, it's a way of mediating, I think, popular vote to some extent. And, I mean, I don't know if it's the same as the state ratifying conventions because there's, I think there's a much more popular aspect to that than, uh, than to the intentions behind the Electoral College. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably also worth noting at this point just how few elections there are even on a statewide scale at this at this stage. I mean, one of the points I make, again, to talk about Pennsylvania, but in, in 1790, the election for governor is the very first time that there has ever been a, a statewide election for a single candidate. Um, they might have had statewide elections for a number of candidates, but never for, for one person. Um, the idea that an election that's fairly rare even on a state level could then be suddenly bumped up to electing a national candidate probably would have appeared pretty strange. Um, 
this makes me sound worryingly like a supporter for the Federalists, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but we can at least see that there's... Well, 2016 is, you know, if there's, if there's any year that makes you sit around and think, may our do elections really work? <laughs> and is that, like, actually the best way to decide something? That's... that's a uh, big deal for to get me thinking like that, but uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but there are some issues in the said. There's some there's some issues, and, I, and when we've been in this discussion we've been having, there's a number of these situations where you see that they they actually didn't. You know, the elections were great when they were a rich when they were a reaffirming ritual. Elections always were much more problematic and scary and and hemmed around with different protections when they actually got to decide something. You know the idea of like leaving a choice open, you know, that level of risk open involved in letting uh, a bunch of people you don't know and don't control decide something important is uh, is something that's not necessarily uh, even in our so-called democratic society. It's not necessarily something that uh, comes all that naturally. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it's notable that a lot of the times that we've talked about there being a distinct change in practice, it follows immediately after there being very contentious elections. That you know, there, is, there is something that's worrying about an election that's on a knife edge. Right. Um, that, that normally suggests something is wrong that's not necessarily to do with democracy, but maybe something more fundamental within society. Um, so I guess one of the things... Well, I, I will pause for a second because Michael will complain that I started off another sentence with so I guess um, Wow, is it at that level of editing? It is at that level of editing It is at that level of editing Only for you, Ken <laughs> So then you can loop him going so, 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 so so, 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 so. We don't need any more public this knowledge will be of edited. This will be edited <laughs> This may be edited <laughs> This is why this is recorded live, not live <laughs> <laughs> It's clear then that there's an awful lot, even within the Constitutional Convention, that is kind of making up governmental practice and electoral practice as, as they went along, that there's not necessarily a clear idea of what this is going to look like even 10, 20 years in the future. And so I wondered if one of the things that we might talk about now is what the first federal elections were like. Because certainly when we talk about the establishment of the federal government, it's well known that one of the problems that the executive and the legislative branch have um, when they convene in New York in 1789 is there's so much of the bare bones of the Constitution that they have to make flesh. Um, But the Constitution also leaves electoral practice up to the states in regard to the first federal elections. And again, this leads to a very curious mishmash of electoral practices so that even national elections, even things that today seem to be very clear snapshots of public intent on a very regularised system, really don't take place in the same way. Um, And I wonder if that tells us something about the difficulty of talking about elections in early America is just to look at 1788. I mean, I know we were talking about this in in pre-production, but... Um, In some ways, it's really curious that the manner of elections is left up as a matter for policy, whereas 
in the 1790s, so many other questions become a, a matter of constitutional right. You know, the National Bank is either unconstitutional or constitutional. Electoral practice, well, that can be changed by an individual party in an individual state according to their political whims. From, from, month, from month election to election. Yeah, what, right. whatever's yeah. in the best interest of the party that actually controls the, the legislature is what becomes electoral law. I mean, we see that in a number of cases where legislatures can't actually agree on presidential electors. I mean, one of the early elections, New York doesn't, um, has problems in choosing electors. In 1800, Pennsylvania splits its electors um, more or less down the middle um, between Adams and Jefferson because the, the legislature is split and they can't have an agreement. And that's just for choosing presidential electors. If we look at the, um, the state-level practice as well, um, a number of states go back and forth between different systems for choosing electors, very much for partisan advantage. Um, does this tell us something that there's something very unusual about the new constitutional settlement in America? Well, I don't think it would have been ratified if the, if the Constitution had had specific, really clear national-wide electoral rules, because in many ways this was slop to get it ratified. I think you know, there's only so much that they, the, the framers could do to sort of try to break the power of local elites, and in many ways still allowing the pre-existing partisan structures within each person, you know, each representative state, to, make, to, to stick around is sort of a halfway measure of sort of bringing pre-existing political norms into this new system in a way that creates as little controversy as possible. So many other elements of the Constitution were important to the framers so that, you know, they needed to find ways to get pre-existing political structures to buy into the new government. And one of the ways of doing that was sort of leaving up to each individual state the ability to set their own electoral rules because, you know, more control, the, giving the control of the franchise to the national government, I don't think is something that many states would have been comfortable with, particularly southern states, uh, because there was enough fear that the Constitution could, you know, do things towards things like slavery, and they were already giving trade policy over to the national government, giving the franchise control over the national government to the national government would be a big problem. And we, as we've seen in the 19th and 20th century, the decision to do that has had long-term negative repercussions in the way in which the franchise works in the United States. But I think at the time, and it really is, reflects what the Constitution is, this was the kind of compromise that they needed to make uh, to make the Constitution work in 1788. I mean, to me, it gets to the... In one of the reasons voting is so controversial and people get so emotional about the right to vote and then why it's become a, the center of so many movements is because uh, if you think about it, the franchise is really a statement that is who gets to vote. It is a statement about who counts in society, right? It's really uh, the society's vision of itself. Uh, uh, embodied. And so that's quite different. You know, it changes a lot actually throughout uh, throughout. American history moves towards so-called manhood suffrage, which is really white manhood suffrage, but that uh, in a lot of places included uh, actually immigrant, you know, aliens, mm -hmm. uh, and and, uh, and and it's quite different, you know, when the, when, the, when the constitutions put in there, there there are. Uh, property qualifications in some places. There are different types of systems. You know, there's viva voce voting in the South. It's still the viva voce voting, what we talked about at the beginning, where you walk up to a table. 
other places they're moving towards more they're moving towards uh, more privatistic systems with actual ballots so in you know in both cases you're talking you're talking about not just how society's structured but how members of it relate to each other so there's a lot of like all kinds of fundamental questions that get built into those things so uh, I mean it seems almost of course that that's you know, the bank, and we think of the Constitution as being fundamental, and of course it is, but it's probably less fundamental than how this local community runs itself and who gets to run it, which is really what the franchise uh, entails. So I guess it makes sense then that, uh, that it, that's, that's not something that's going to change easily or all at once. And, and there's also the question of what community is represented, too, um, in that there's a local community, a state community, right. a national community, and there are overlapping understandings of which of those is most important. And I, th- I mean, to me, one of the most important stories of the 1790s is how do you work out a system in which a feeling of a local community can be transmitted to, to national politics, mm-hmm. that political understanding generally is so, so close and so tied to the area in which you live that the challenge is how do you make the federal government seem more like a local community? And that has a lot of implications for who gets elected or how you elect people. That's a very kind of multifaceted story. It goes in different directions. Because we would naturally think, I think the automatic thing people would think is that, well, there was a lot of democracy at the local level, like the New England town meeting, and then it gradually filtered up. In fact, in, in the South, uh, they had these unelected you know, mm-hmm. places like uh, Virginia, they would, the county court run and everything, and they were self-selecting. They picked their own members, and it takes a long time for anybody to be elected mm-hmm. in that system. And it's actually not until after... Uh, Jacksonianism triumphs and the idea and the idea that every office should be elected and that it was inappropriate for any office uh, to, to not be elected that that then turns around and goes back down uh, to the local level now in New England it was a quite different story because they had the town meeting system and you can debate about how well, how that's whether that's actually democratic or not but it did mean that every people were getting local officials getting elected all the time in a way that wasn't at all true uh, in, the, in the other parts of the country. So. And, and it also means there's an awful lot that's up for debate with regards to what the purpose of an election is. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was thinking about when we were talking about how each individual state comes up with its own rules is Patrick Henry's rules to try and write James Madison out of the House of Representatives. Right. And then you get that really interesting discussion of has Madison turned himself into something that's much more like a delegate or is he a representative? Because Madison, because of the rules that have been instituted, is forced into a campaign against James Monroe. Um, you mean the ones that keep Madison out of the Senate? Yeah, that right. keep, keep him out of the Senate. Madison can't be in the Senate, so he has to run for the House. So he has right. to run for the House. But then the rules in the House state that you have to live in the district that you are elected in, which forces Madison into a campaign against James Monroe, which means that Madison then engages in some highly unusual political behaviour for the late 1780s in terms of actually going round to county court days and campaigning and... Um, you know, making direct promises to voters yeah. in a in a very overt, much more modern campaigning style that you wouldn't see in many other areas. Certainly not the candidate. You might have candidate supporters um, working on their behalf, and then that has Im- an impact on the way that 
or potentially has an impact on the way that Madison acts when he gets to the House of Representatives because he feels so much more tied to the actions of his, um, or to his words in winning support in Virginia compared to, um, compared to other representatives that consider themselves to have a little more intellectual discretion. The exact uh, move that you're talking about in terms of uh, the, the rule of having, of having someone standing for election have to be a resident of the district is exactly the move that uh, the Delanceys polled against Philip Livingston in, in 1768. <laughs> And 1769, and then a few years later. So it's not necessarily a new tactic. It has uh, it has colonial antecedents, but it's but it is happening in a, in a sort of a new context. And it's all, I think it's also important to keep in mind that that you know there's there's still you know it's a it's a developing system, and there's still uh, experimentation going on. And sort of the, the prime example of that is the voting requirements in New Jersey. Right, that allowed women and and free blacks to vote if they owned 50 pounds of property, and so there's 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 experimentation and there's uh, there's you know sort of novel ways of trying to work out this question of who who counts mm-hmm. in terms of being able to uh, help decide uh, the results of elections in the, the 1790s. And, and of course, that's an important reminder that decisions that are made on who counts can also be reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Absolutely. not. Um, this isn't a teleological story in which more and more people get ballot access. And, mm-hmm. um, this is this is an uneven story in which it's given and taken away. Absolutely. Um, so we should move on to talking about presidential elections. Um, I think we should probably turn over to Jeff at this point. So. Oh. <laughs> Except for just lack of prepared remarks. <laughs> well, go ahead. Ask me a question. What, 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 what question would you like me to ask? <laughs> what do you wow. think of presidential elections? <laughs> what question would you yes. like, would you like <clears throat> to, to answer? So, um, <laughs> um, how far do the uneven interpretations of what an election should be um, affect the outcomes of the presidential elections of 1796 and 1800. How did the unevenness? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, greatly. I don't know if you could talk about the about the unevenness uh, having an effect somehow on its own. Mm-hmm. It's more like uh, a lot of the election is takes place under kind of the. The, the traditional rules where there's there there aren't there isn't much competition there isn't much activity surrounding it, uh, but then in a few key places, uh, especially places like Pennsylvania where they have a, where they they have a, a statewide vote, uh, and and there's actually a contest uh, then uh, and in a few key places where there was an electoral elector race that someone tried that someone tried to contest, uh, so in some respects it's very. Uh, in some respects, it's very it's it's very localized and it's very spotty. I guess what I tend to be impressed by is the fact that, well, it's not impressed. Is that I don't know if you sit uh, like if you in Missouri in this election we haven't had a lot of uh, you know we went out and found our signs you know found out our our Bernie and our Hillary signs and their Bernie and Hillary signs joined together. Uh, uh, as a symbol of party unity, but it wasn't like they were running around giving those out. Uh, it's uh, you know there's a, there's those things are naturally available, but it's still the, the campaigns compete in the places where they think they can win, mm-hmm. and there's way more activity in some places than others. Uh, and in and, and, and one sense, 1796 would have been a situation just like that where 
uh, you know, as, as I talk about in the book, there's one, the Northern Virginia, the Northern Virginia Elector District. You know, the, the uh, Virginia had decided to have a dis elect, uh, choose presidential electors by district uh, that time. And it meant that uh, even though most of the state was going to go for Jefferson with no, with, with no problem, there were a couple of places where there were enough enemies of Jefferson, uh, friends of Patrick Henry, uh, people who uh, read enough Federalist newspapers that they could try to make a go of it. So there's this uh, one particular elector who has some things to say about Jefferson's cowardice during the uh, as Revolutionary War governor. Uh, and uh, put out some things around the country that were sort of reprinted as even a Virginian thinks Jefferson's a coward, uh, um, to quote, to kind of tr slightly translate it into a modern idiom. Uh, and that, you know, that ends up being the, the Jefferson wins, loses the election by three electoral votes, and one of them is this northern Virginia district where this one person has this very intense campaign only in a couple counties, uh, lots of other places, there would have been almost nothing happening. But, you know, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. parts of Virginia, a uh, good deal of Maryland there was, the city of Boston, uh, you know, Connecticut, not too much. Uh, so so it's, uh, it's, it is very uneven. I guess, uh, I guess my, my end message about that is that unevenness actually is more a story throughout the rest of American history than people realize because... Uh, we're used to the idea of uniformity and national and national means uniform. And uh, in fact, because of the Electoral College and because of the way everything's divided up by states, it isn't necessarily as uniform uh, as, as we think. You know, Iowa and New Hampshire wouldn't be such a big deal if it were a system uh, that operated according to, according to such to one uniform principle. I don't know if that's your asking, Ken, but that's what I said. It's, I'm not sure if it's what I was asking, but it was certainly a great answer. So. Well, I think what you also see in the Jeffersonian period after 1800 is the idea of creating elections as mandates and, yeah. and, national, and, 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 and turning them really into electricals, elect, uh, electoral spectacles that, and allowing a party to claim a mandate from an election, which you, def, I mean, you don't really see, obviously, with Washington and I don't think you would see even in uh, 1796. But no. after 1800, at both the presidential and congressional level, the, the Jeffersonians claimed a mandate to impose their agenda and to transform the way in which politics works on the national level that I think begins a long process that we're, you, know, you see you know, with the Jacksonians and you see with Lincoln and the Republicans and you know, obviously you see in the, in the 20th and 21st century. So I think you, you definitely you begin to see the sort of light at the end of the tunnel to modern presidential uh, electoral practices with 1800 and the way in which presidential and congressional elections get linked, I think, also emerges in the, uh, in the Jeffersonian period and just gets more tightly wound as, you know, as we move towards Jackson. No, not, even then, not evenly. I mean, there's, there's actually certainly periods in the earlier 19th century where that, was, that's not, that still wasn't happening. Uh, I mean, it you know depends. Basically, depends on national policy issues. You know, there are, when there are national policy issues that can uh, be debated in those local congressional races, then you know, then they have an effect. Uh, uh, but that gets that. There's there's various times at which that gets lost. Uh, in the early 19th century, in the Jim Crow South, it also gets lost again. Uh, and I think there's other times you could talk about. It. I mean, I think a lot of there's a lot of the red states today where that's kind of lost. It's an identity, you know, 
the, the apportionment is, has been made such that, I mean, there's, they've managed to computer apportion things so that every, almost everything is a safe seat and so that there's very little in the, ways of, in the way of national issues that get debated or anything. Uh, that has to really be debated in those in in those local in a lot of those local races. To not talk too much about twenty twenty first century politics, though, but doesn't that often happen in the primaries now? Like you see that, like that's how Eric Cantor got defeated, right? Was that the Tea Party candidate in outside, oh, sure. outside of um, Richmond nationalized a primary and said, oh, that, sure. you know, he Cantor worked with Obama, and Obama is the devil, and so you know he should be voted out, and that's sort of how he was defeated. But they nationalized, I mean, they nationalized the local congressional election in 1792, right? Yeah. In, mm-hmm. in, in Philadelphia? Yes. Yeah. Right? And um, so even, even more so in 94. In 94, yeah. right. So, so that's one of those things that even in a system where it's not usually happening, it is occasionally available, which, which I think is the nature of the, if, if, if we're if our arguing kind of unevenness thesis, is that uh, it, is, it doesn't mean that it never happens. Right. It, it means that it's more of a resource that gets pulled, that gets used at different times. And, and I think another thing that it highlights, um, particularly with your counter example, Roy, is the the fact that you know, nowadays we complain about how long the election cycle seems to go on, that it seems to be interminable. We've been talking about who's going to be the nominees since God knows when in 2015, just on official campaigns, let alone all the speculation. But then again, if we look back to to early America and certainly the national campaigns, there is a sense that these elections are important and um, signal matters of great national portent. But again, the period of that discussion drags on for a long time. The election of 1800 runs from gubernatorial elections in 1799 through to the House of Representatives meeting in, in 1801. It's, a, it's you know, at least an 18-month election cycle in terms of actually resolving anything. Um, and so the fact that today we have these uneven state primary practices and very different um, election calendars that mean that there's almost always something going on, electorally speaking. Um, That's actually quite similar to what was going on in early America. And it goes back to our earlier point that even today, the franchise and electoral practices are still not fully nationalized, right? And that goes back to the fact that the Constitution lacks an electoral framework, even though it has been expanded by later amendments. At this stage, we're going to embark on a new departure, a veritable innovation in the form of junto casting, and open up the floor to questions from our live audience. Um, There will be a microphone that is circulating for any of you that have anything to ask us, and um, Michael assures me that that will manage to be picked up on his high-tech recording equipment. Maybe. Maybe. It expresses a certain level of confidence. The 538 model says it's more likely than not that the audio will be picked up. Um, I appreciate Nate Silver's confidence. Yes. Um, Okay, so the the restating of the question, I'll make it easy, will be to what extent is the story about political practice a distinctly American one versus to what extent might there be foreign influences um, at play here? Uh, the example for that question would be, of course, where is the French Revolution? We're talking about yeah. uh, popular uh, participation. We're talking about political methods and practices. We're talking about social customs and rituals. 
um, the French Revolution is all of those things, um, writ large. Uh, we were also talking about the secret ballot. It seemed like they're one of the kind of narratives of your discussion was um, how do we move from that colonial open public system of voting, oral voting, the spectacle in the, in the picture behind you, to then the privatized uh, secret ballot, the, the individual voter behind the curtain. And of course, secret ballot, to, to my knowledge, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but is an innovation of the French Revolution and of the directorate in uh, 1795, trying to navigate that path between the uh, popular passions of the terror and then the resurgent ancien regime um, as, the, as what you have to avoid. And uh, protecting the ballot in some way containing public passions on voting day was one of the methods and the methodologies of achieving that. Um, so the question really, really just stands, what does the French Revolution have to do with What's the wider world have to do with this? Okay, but the, the, the French Revolution is a ton to do with it. Uh, I'm going to just answer in a kind of more, more specific way, which is that uh, certainly in the Pennsylvania, if you talk about Pennsylvania in the early in the mid 1790s as the original outbreak of presidential politics, that was quite directly fueled by the Fr- the French Revolution, you know, inspired by the French Revolution in the sense that the uh, the first sort of democrat uh, opposition party bodies were essentially French Revolution fan clubs uh, that probably in many cases were had members who were immigrant who members who'd been there or had uh, uh, some cases. Is money that 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 was going. Uh, the, the French minister Genet was inspired them. Uh, then there's the matter of specific issues where uh, the, somebody in the French government paid uh, paid the Virginia senator to release the text of the Jay Treaty and then printed it up and spread it around. Uh, there's of course the infamous case where uh, the French minister Ade uh, during the specifically during the Pennsylvania election, especially during when they were voting in Philadelphia, uh, sort of issued various public communications to the, to the Washington administration, essentially threatening war if uh, people voted for John Adams, and uh, with the idea being that the Quakers, the Quakers who were pacifists and had interests at stake, that they would uh, that would scare them out of voting. And uh, Possibly it did. I think one of the things about the secret ballot as we understand it today um, is that it's known as the Australian ballot mm-hmm. when it's being introduced in the 19th century. Yeah, and that even the secret ballot as it, defend, um, as it develops in the 1790s, 1800s is not necessarily all that secret. You're not announcing yourself, but you are given tickets on coloured paper or with particularly fancy headings so that um, you're responsible for um, identifying yourself by what you put into the ballot box. It's, it's still often visible, and so it's not until you, you get even much later into the 19th century that the secret ballot, in terms of it being absolutely secret, that you're all using the, the same ballot paper becomes a... I, th- I think there's an awful lot of work that could still be done on this, actually in comparing actual voting practices. Um, and I think that would be really interesting work to, to see what came out of it. It goes even further back, though, right? Because the 
the Committee of Safety started, you know, revolutionary practices, right? The Committee of Safety started with the English Revolution. There were Committees of Safety there, and then the American revolutionaries adapted that to the American context, and then it was exported to France. So there's, there's a lot of tr- going all the way back to sure. the English Revolution. Mm-hmm. There's this transatlantic culture of revolution that is constantly being reaffirmed and transformed as it moves through these different practices. What are the themes of this election cycle, and it's a theme that we've seen sort of carried through from, from over the past eight years or so, has been the question of, of like, the legitimacy of, of, of elections. There have been many um, state legislatures who have passed uh, measures to uh, cut down on voter fraud, and we have one of the current candidates for president who claims that uh, voters need to be concerned about how people are voting, if they have the right to vote, and he perhaps has even uh, moved to encourage contesting the election should a certain outcome occur. But my question is, what does what do, what do concerns with legitimacy look like in the early republic? Are there remedies that are suggested during this time um, for what a contested election uh, should look like and, and how people might respond? It's, there's, I mean, it's all... There's no remedies. It's all it's all uh, stuff that evolves. I mean, I think that one thing that wasn't established because the Constitution doesn't establish it is that the 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 candidate with the most votes wins. You know that that's that that was not established, right? According to the rules in the Electoral College, uh, the Electoral College, and especially the rules for how the House election would work out. Uh, it was, you know, it was quite possible for someone who didn't get the most votes uh, to end up being the winner, and uh, you know it might have happened in 1800. The first time this comes up is really in 1800 when uh, they'd realized in 1796 that they that they needed to have a running mate that because because 1796, of course, uh, Adams had won and then and his opponent had become vice president and then got to sit there and do nothing but plot against him. Uh, for four years, so that didn't seem to work out. So they tried to have uh, the two candidates, the two Republican candidates, actually have the same number of exact same number of electoral votes, Jefferson and Burr. But then that left it open to the possibility of a House. That meant it was tied, and it could be decided in the House. And that then, then again, that that Aaron Burr, who clearly wasn't, even though he got the same number of electoral votes, was clearly not the leading candidate that he could have uh, legally been picked, or any other person actually uh, could have been legally picked. Uh, But it became the tensions over that and some of the threats uh, that went around made it kind of clear that if somebody had tried that, if they had tried that, if they had tried to go outside uh, what seemed to be the popular choice, there would have been trouble. Uh, The elect IT24, the so-called corrupt bargain, you know, there's there's a, a lot of questions about whether it's it certainly isn't corrupt. I mean, it was actually the two people who agreed with the two candidates who agreed with each other the most, uh, John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, kind of throwing themselves together, basically joining together to join their votes together to elect Adams, and then uh, Clay joining the administration. I mean, there's nothing really corrupt about it, but it did result in the in in the the person that didn't get the most votes. You know, not the vote the the top vote getter. Um, from being elected, and that's something that it became a kind of unsp- it seemed to have be- it seemed to have become an unspoken rule, or no, it's actually very spoken, after, uh, <laughs> but a spoken principle, but not a rule. Uh, 
literally a rule that uh, the person who had the, got the most votes or pretty close uh, needed to be, uh, you know, needed to be the winner. So, uh, but I don't know if that's a, you know, that, that's a kind of formula for legitimacy uh, that emerges. But, uh, but, it, but it's also, it's not like it's tested in the immediate aftermath of the 1824 election. There's a lot of discussion about what legitimacy should be, but by the time you get to tw- 1828, there's no debate. Jackson has won because Jackson has the most votes. It takes a well, long time before you get a comparable situation in which any of the understandings that develop after 1824 are actually put to the test in any, in any meaningful electoral sense. I mean, to me, what it shows is that what's legal isn't necessarily legitimate. Right. And there's a difference between the two. And, 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 and I think that the really interesting thing there, I mean, particularly in the light of Don Ratcliffe's book on 1824 is that to a certain extent it's much more to do with how you manage the popular perception of legitimacy than even just the idea that because he won the most votes it's because Jackson has a whole political infrastructure of supporters and newspaper men and town committees and whatever behind him that he's able to portray this idea of legitimacy they never have to they can just sort of blithely assert oh we won more votes but it's actually, you know, it, the legitimacy to me seems to come a lot more from being able to marshal a popular movement right. rather than being, there being a sort of specific precise formula that you can use. Right, and this goes specifically again back to our broader point that there's no official rules for the elections, and one of the ways in which to exclude certain people who may challenge your political coalition is to question their legitimacy as voters, right? And, and you see this in the Jim Crow South, you see this in attempts to get immigrants not to be able to vote in the North and in the South throughout the 19th and early 20th century. Like this is like a cla- and you even see it in you know local elections on the state level, like questioning the legitimacy of is is a, is a tried into American tactic of ways to sort of you know gain political traction to, to make the next election come your favor come your favor and I think what you see with Jackson is the nas- the successful nationalization of that practice for the first time well kind of picking up on it too I guess when we bring up and I suspect uh, the question when since it came up kind of out of a from a Donald Trump type frame when we bring up legitimacy now it's kind of to be scary and it's in a sense of like you know we're thinking of a uh, a potentially of a failed state where uh, the opponents don't don't accept the election, and then it descends into civil war, or uh, that descends in it descends into some kind of chaos. And I guess, uh, in, at least so far in American history, uh, the legitimacy, you know, it's been more used as an electoral tool, right? Mm-hmm. And in the sense that 1824 and 1828, uh, Adams's election was the legitimacy of his election is very much contested. Uh, and they say all kinds of terrible things about it, but it's more in the service of we're going to crush him the next election, which they do. So in that sense, uh, you know, they, I don't know if they – I actually don't know if they use the word legitimacy. They certainly use the concept, but it's, it wasn't the level of question uh, that, uh, you might, that, the, that you might have been thinking of. Okay, thank you. Well, in this year's election, we hear often that it is an extremely divisive one. Now, can you compare that to some of the early, uh, early uh, elections, like 1796, 1800, 1824? Is there a change in the nature of what is divisive or the degree to which the electorate is divided? I mean, there is, there is certainly 
there are certainly di- I mean, differences. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Um, there, are, I mean, there are certainly differences. I think uh, as the discussion is going on, I'm, I'm somewhat being struck more by the some of the similarities. I mean, certainly in, in 1800. Uh, we didn't really get into the election of 1800, but you know the defining aspect of the election, and we ha- and you have calls uh, of similar to what the previous comment was referring to in in terms of claiming that uh, a certain electoral result would be illegitimate. You have that in 1800. Sure. I guess you have that to some extent in 1796 too, a little bit. Um, but so I mean, you know, there there are there are a lot of. Uh, there are a lot of differences, of course, because it's now over uh, 200 years later. But there are uh, there are a surprising number of similarities uh, between what's happening now, or at least precedents. I think uh, enough to enough that you know it, enough to to maybe put a little bit of doubt in your mind as to uh, you know the the unique the uniqueness of this current election cycle. I was going to say, if the Trump campaign does end up actually contesting the electoral outcome of certain states, uh, it would be closer to the 1876 election, right? Which was, I think, right. one of the times mm-hmm. in which there was fighting over not just something like you know the overall legitimacy of this person's presidency is questioned by how they were elected, but the actual electoral votes and how they should be cast were developed illegally or corruptly or or what have you. So that's sort of, I think, in, actually in many many ways. It, this current election reminds me most of 1876, uh, with the issues that are on the table, the geographic division, the, the the fact that there could be a contested result in the electoral college, uh, not just a contested result in uh, in the number of electors that are given, but the fact of there is like who the electors should be is being contested. And the centrality of race and the centrality, the centrality of immigration. Yeah, too, race, yeah. Well, I mean, certain, I think another question that was being asked is. I mean, I think this a short answer for an you know, early American. It has to be, of course, no, this is not the most divisive election ever because uh, there was the, the, the whole, that whole Civil War thing uh, was, <laughs> was, was, uh, was a divisive election. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things, just terrible things uh, that are said uh, and made prints about, you know, uh, in, in, you know in memes uh, that were sent around in the 19th century, uh, very crude plays on, on race, uh, you know, questions about uh, James Buchanan's sexuality, about, uh, uh, you know, Lincoln's racial view, Lincoln's racial views about uh, whether, you know, the, the Jefferson was supposedly going to ban the Bible, right? In Connecticut, they said he was going to ban the Bible, uh, that he was going to turn, throw marriage to the stews. I don't know what that means, whatever, whatever that means. You know, it's bad. It's bad. Uh, so there's lots, you know, you get into the details of these old elections uh, and read through the newspapers, and they, they weren't, ho- they weren't uh, hold, bar, holding many bars. They were hanging out in bars. <laughs> they Perhaps were probably holding bars to hit each other with, uh, <laughs> and, but they were not. They weren't. They bar, there weren't too many holds barred in the sense of tactics they wouldn't use, things they wouldn't say. Uh, indeed, I would say I would have to say that the, that their their sort of arsenal of things they could do was so much wider. I mean, we haven't even really talked about 
you know, in between the secret ballot and viva voce voting is the is the is the election where you have to go fight. You know, that, that, that was a sort of very typical situation in the 19th century would be if you're going to go vote, uh, you, especially if you're a Whig in a certain New York area, you're going to have to go fight those Irish guys if you're going to vote. Uh, and and then that's something that's kind of uh, – it wasn't like people thought that was great. It wasn't like that was approved of, but it was like normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I'm going to jump in with a couple of my favorites campaign dirty tricks, um, one of which was to spread the rumor that the candidate had died. Yeah. <laughs> close, enough to the, close enough to the election that people might not turn out to vote for him, but, uh, um, but not in quite enough, just enough time to let the rumor to spread, but not quite enough time for authentic proof of him still being alive to be distributed back to the, um, to be back to the electorate. Um, and and another one was to um, put up a candidate with um, for two people with the same name, because then te- because because then technically the older person, if you just wrote down Ken Owen, it would be the older Ken Owen that would be the person who the vote would count for. So you'd have to specify the particular residence of the younger Ken Owen if you wanted that um, if you wanted that vote to count. Um, in terms of divisiveness, I'm going to be a little bit speculative here, but um, what about the ratification campaign? I mean, mm. that's a very divisive election in which violence and all sorts of accusations about illegitimate political practices are determined. And it seems to me that one of the things that undergirds any discussion of legitimacy or divisiveness is the question about what happens after the result. And it's clear that in 1788, it takes a while for people to be absolutely certain that anti-federalists are going to recognize the result. It's not until you get to Pennsylvania's Harrisburg Convention where they say, okay, this is going to happen, now we have to engage, that there is sort of any clear statement that becomes nationally known where the anti-federalists just accept that the legitimacy of the election is, um, is going to be resolved. I think that's that's the difficulty in talking about the divisiveness of a modern-day election, that we kind of know that in previous, way, in previous elections it might have gone to civil war, it might have gone right to the brink of something, but then they pulled back. Um, I, I, think the diff- I think the difference in early America, um, i.e. before we get to the civil war, the, the big difference there is that they're worried that if they don't find if they don't ultimately agree, then foreign powers are going to come in and swoop in and divide up the nation. And so even when um, Monroe's getting the Virginia militia ready in 1801 and um, McCain's getting the Pennsylvania militia ready to um, seize the presidency for Jefferson if the House of Representatives tries any any funny games in, in getting Burr elected, I think there's still kind of a sense that you need to you need to stay together because the dangers of really contesting an election um, are too dangerous. And I think that's why if we're looking for the most divisive elections, we tend to go to the, the, the middle, late 19th century rather than the early part. It's not until nationhood and independence feel secure that it's quite acceptable to really push a, con- a disputed election right to the brink of, of violence. And for all of the republics that have existed in the United States, in many ways, lucky that we've only had a full exit once. 
and you know most other republics have collapsed multiple times. So, um, when we're talking about the um, electoral process and we're trying to uh, understand, um, evaluate, and how it changed, uh, well, uh, I think I guess in the back of our minds we're talking about uh, uh, constitutional democracy and in what sense. Uh, certain representatives are chosen, and who gets to choose it. Uh, so that reminds me about uh, what Carl Becker wrote about the colonial uh, election process more than 100 years ago, that nominations were actually a very effective means for the elite to control who gets to be chosen as representatives, even with the colonies having relatively broad electorates, right? So uh, I wonder what you can talk about how that starts to change. Well, assuming that uh, broadly, many uh, colonies outside of New England, uh, that the nomination process was controlled by a few hands. Um, how, would, how would we uh, explain the change? Uh, can we talk about certain watershed moments in this revolutionary period? Or uh, what was happening in the states immediately after the revolution? And to what extent can we say that uh, the framers of the federal constitution were trying to maybe bring back some of the power of controlling nomination mm -hmm. in a sense uh, against what was happening? States. Well, they did, but the framers don't really create a nomination process, right? I mean, that's that's they kind of leave that out. Uh, I mean, I guess I would say that the nomination process, you know, that's something that it becomes an organized thing. It really goes along with the rise of parties, right? And the parties control that, and that doesn't mean it's not still not controlled by elites of some kind, because it, of course, usually is, but that at least means it's, it is something besides uh, a coterie of wealthy people. One, at least there's two coteries of wealthy people, maybe, uh, or, or influential people who are then, who are then uh, picking themselves out. But it also provided, uh, through the kind of structures of the parties, uh, an arena for people to sort of... Uh, make a name for themselves uh, writing in newspapers or speaking at the meetings and kind of claw their way up through that system. And there are an awful lot of, of uh, low, you know, congressmen and people in kind of local and state office in the 19th century who really are their party hacks. But, you know, I say that in a kind of a good way uh, in the sense that they're a party hack because they're someone who got where they were because of they, they served the party and, it's, and tried to follow out its ideological dictates. Uh, I, I guess another, but another, like another watershed that we're seeing in recent times is the the reforms of the part of the the reform of the national nominating conventions, which has allowed nominations essentially be a done self, essentially allowed self nominations by by celebrity or people making themselves celebrities using the using their the their own money to use media to kind of make put their own names out. Uh, and in a sense, it's not like they they don't get obviously they don't, ever, they don't all successfully self-nominate, but they essentially are 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 all self-nominating and, and doing as little as they can, in many cases, to uh, talk about a party or why they're you know it's just they're they're doing it for them. So, I don't I mean, know there if is that's a, a, there is a there is a shift. I, I guess it's around the, the mid twentieth century when the the uh, or I guess it's different times for the two parties when the the nomination process is, is, you know, taken through these uh, popular vote in the primaries, 
right? And so in some sense, I mean, I, I think that's not so much a, a change because in the end, you still have the you still have the party elites who are trying to to manage and uh, uh, negotiate that process by getting their candidate through what looks what looks like a more popular process than it used to be. And so in, in some sense, probably um, in that sense, maybe very little has changed since uh, what Carl Becker was talking about in Colonial New York. But I don't think we should just talk about early American elections as if they're um, purely controlled by elites. I mean, you use the term politics from the middle out, rather, right. in, in, in your book, and that's very useful because, at the very well, least... I wasn't writing about Delance, the New York and the Delanceys. No. But, the, but, the, but, <laughs> but, yeah, and, 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 and it shows that there's a need for quite a lot of sensitivity to local practice as well, that clearly in some, in some areas local elites are going to be really important in nominating candidates. In other places, it's no. going to be a much more rough-and-ready process. Right. Um, but certainly, I, I find in, um, in the work that I do on Pennsylvania, one of the things that, that really shines through is that it's very difficult for someone to just appear as a nominee, even if it's, even if it's with influential friends that by far and away the most successful and the most popular candidates are able to mobilize a broad base of popular support through county committees, town meetings, um, pamphleteering. And it's probably more of a dialectical process than a grassroots process. It's someone has friends that allows them to be able to coordinate the support and they then see what they can make work on the, at a grassroots level. But nevertheless... I find that it's very rare to find candidates in Pennsylvania in the 1790s who are able to succeed without there being some broader manifestation of their popular support that exists. And, I, I mean, I, in, in, in some ways I actually wonder if it's one of these where it's much more open in certain places in the 1790s, 1800s, but then party bosses get more control mm -hmm. um, as right. you go into the 19th century. And then York. that becomes a problem, and then yeah. that's where the primary system and other mass mobilization develops in the 20th century. I mean, that just go that goes back to the overall theme of discussion today, which is unevenness, yeah. really, and, and diversity mm -hmm. of practice and... and uh, uh, diversity of policy, really. And if you want to look for continuity, I mean, just look at a local local elections in the 21st century. There's actually a lot of in common uh, in common within the 18th century, right? It's very haphazard. It's very, you know, in some places you can be a large nobody and run for a local office. In some places, there's clearly power brokers that you have to come through a local party or a local set of elites in order to get onto the school board and then get on the state legislature and then move up to Congress. In other places, wealthy people can just basically buy an office for themselves. So it's very very uneven, and in many ways, actually, the, I think one of the stronger points of continuity from early American elections to 21st century American elections is on the local level, where there's this unevenness, this incomplete transformations, and the nomination process, in many ways, is one of the places where that's most obvious. Do we have any more? Do we have more? Any more comments? Comments, questions, jokes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is it your question about the Australian bell? I wish it was. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I was just thinking about bouncing off this similarities and differences aspect because it just strikes me that oftentimes when early elections in the United States are invoked in newspapers now, it will be under headlines that are about 
you know, this awful thing that we don't like now used to happen then, so we should feel better about ourselves now because, you know, Jefferson said Adams was a mathematical or whatever. Right, right. Uh, so we should all be feel okay. Is that a kind of legitimate lesson to take out of the American oh, I mean that's a kind of, that's a kind of sort of more recent development, right? Because it used to be this. I think the, the the comparison used to be how how degenerated things have become from this seeming you know this uh, golden age, right? This <clears throat> inexistent golden age, and so uh, it's kind of like uh, one step forward, two steps back, really. I think thinking in those terms. And I I think one of the problems is that. We've all been talking today about how contested the meaning of democracy was and how contested the meaning of elections was from the very earliest appearance of elections. And that means that if you want to find parallels to characterise elections um, over a long period of time, it's not all that difficult to do. There's so many different interpretations of what the job of a candidate is or what the purpose of an election is or um, how you should... um, how you should elect people or who should elect people, that there's going to be traces of these debates everywhere. I mean, to me, the important thing is setting them within a context that's sensitive to time and place and doesn't sort of try and do the, aha, you thought it was new in 2016, but actually... Um, yeah, everybody loves it when early Americans do that kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, you thought that was new, but I, we, <laughs> I saw that in 1745. So, <laughs> so, so yeah. shut up. There was hip-hop uh, in the 1770s. Uh, <laughs> I think Billy's question, I guess I'm sure we shouldn't be addressing the audience by name. It's radio, right? Uh, uh, I think that's thing you certainly don't want to get in the business of saying you shouldn't worry about something now, something terrible happened now because something even more terrible happened 150 years ago. And I, and I guess that's it definitely does, can't come off that way. I, I don't think that's the point. I mean, if, if you need to use it emotionally in some way, there's some days it can be a way to just not panic. Uh, you know, just, just if you feel that, like, I'm a, how could this? Ha- how could these things be happening? The world has never seen a thing like this before. I just don't know how I'll survive. It's a way of putting things that. It's, it's a way of putting it in perspective, which certainly doesn't mean uh, you shouldn't worry about it. I mean, I guess uh, another way to look at it, to turn around is is look, things can always get worse, <laughs> right? <laughs> things have been worse in the past, and they could get a lot worse in the future. So you'd better uh, do whatever you feel you need to do to keep them. Uh, from getting worse because they can't. I think also for me, it's it's both terrifying and affirming. So for a lot of the things right, that Jeff yeah. said, but it's also terrifying that we, we never actually have come to a consensus about what democracy means in America. And the fact that we believe that we did is a legacy of the 1940s, 1950s, and the idea that there's an American consensus. Yeah. And one of the things I think historians both of the early America and other periods of America have done is unsettled that idea that there's ever been an American consensus uh, about these questions. And that's, I think, the most terrifying thing about these kind of things is that we really don't have as much consensus as we may want or may hope or may dream 
But I mean, it's, isn't, isn't this much more that the, the myth of consensus is really useful? Because everyone likes to think that there's a consensus until they realise that they don't. It might actually be that you know, the four of us think that we think the same way about elections, and in most elections they're not actually contested or, or controversial enough for us to really realise that what, how we thought elections should work wasn't the same at all. Um, <laughs> and that... that it seems to me that that's sort of the when we when we talk about all these particular elections that we look at as watershed moments in in the development of political practice that actually what it tends to be is that people thought differently on these questions it's just that unless you have candidates that sharply draw those differences into focus you you don't really contest you, you don't you don't really think about it because you don't need to a lot of the time elections are more of a a ritual and an affirmation of a governmental system. Well, one of the things that may really upset us, a lot of people, about some of the elections we've been having recently is that the ritual function doesn't work very well uh, mm-hmm. when they're as ugly as they have been. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and it's maybe may, the republic may or may not really be falling apart. I don't know. I officially, officially don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I thought we were going to settle that today. I officially can't say. The, the, the Kinder Institute has no position. <laughs> <laughs> on the that, fate of the republic. On the fate of the republic. Uh, we can conclude on that doomsday note. Right. Well, I'm glad that we're able to end on such a note of clarity and optimism for today. <laughs> Um, before we finish, I have, again, a number of people to thank. So thanks very much to our hosts here at the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy for allowing us to have um, such fun uh, recording our podcast in front of an audience. Um, we're really grateful to the, for the support. Uh, we'd also like to thank, again, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Missouri Humanities Council for the funding that they made available for this event. If you want to find out more about elections in early American history, you should check out our show notes at thejuntocast.com. And if you're interested in reading a lot more about early American history more broadly, you should visit the Junto blog, which you can find at earlyamericanists.com. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us on Facebook by searching for the Juntocast, on Twitter using the handle at Juntocast. Or you can email us at thejuntocast at gmail.com. So thanks to my fellow participants, Michael, Roy, and Jeff. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Ken. And thank you for the live audience for being here today. And finally, thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.